going to put a picture up on the screen. Uh, might find it. There it is. Uh, I wonder if any of you have seen one of these in real life. This is a very special thing. Um, maybe you've seen one if you've served in our military. Uh, maybe you've dreamed of wearing one of these. Uh, this is the Medal of Honor. It's this country's highest award for bravery in combat. And about uh, 3,500 men and women have received this medal over the past 150 years. 19 people in American history have received this medal twice. And one man almost received it three times. Uh, his name was Sergeant Major Dan Daly, and he was a Marine. He was decorated with the Medal of Honor for bravery in China in 1900, and again for bravery in Haiti in 1915. And then, during the First World War, he rescued a whole platoon of soldiers, uh, a whole platoon of wounded troops, by uh, single-handedly charging a machine gun nest. Um, so he was recommended for a third Medal of Honor, but the, uh, the military brass decided that no one should have three. Um, and so they turned him down, and he got the second highest medal instead. But nevertheless, the name of Dan Daly is a legend in the Marines to this day, and he clearly deserves honor and recognition for his enormous courage. When he faced those machine gun bullets in World War I, he fought alone in a foreign country with hardly anyone there to see his moment of triumph. But then later, when he got back home to the US, there was a great big ceremony with flags and trumpets and a handshake from the president and hundreds of admiring soldiers applauding. So the mission came first and the recognition came later. And it worked in a similar way with Jesus because the cross was his moment of victory. That was when he single-handedly charged the machine gun nest. And plenty of people saw it happen, but it didn't look like much of anything to them at the time. And then the resurrection happened and that was Jesus' moment of triumph. He came back to life again and that was truly and demonstrably amazing. Um, but no one was there to see it, see the actual moment that it happened. Uh, people discovered it little by little as they met up with Jesus afterward. So there was this dawning realization among Jesus' followers of what he'd done for them. Again, the mission came first and the recognition came later. And there was some recognition here on earth, but the place where Jesus was truly recognized and celebrated was in heaven by the Father who sent him on the mission, and the angels who knew the plan. So it was just like with our own military heroes, the medals come once you get home. And when Jesus got back home to heaven with his mission complete, there was this huge celebration and full recognition of what he'd accomplished. And how do we know that? Because the Apostle John saw it happen. Uh, he saw a vision of heaven that he wrote down in Revelation chapter 5, a vision of Jesus being worshipped in heaven for his victory here on earth. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. I might possibly be the only preacher on Easter Day preaching out of Revelation chapter 5. <laughs> um, but uh, the Lord laid this on my heart. It's a strange thing to look at on Easter Sunday. Um, but I chose Revelation chapter 5 because it gives us heaven's perspective on what Jesus' cross and resurrection really mean. It's heaven's interpretation of why the mission of Good Friday and Easter Sunday matters. And uh, we see two things. We see that it matters first because it's the only way that the world can ever be put right. 
And second, because it's the only way that we can ever be put right. So, uh, yeah, it's rusting. You can turn it up now. Revelation chapter 5 is on page 1030 of the Church Bibles. 1030-1020, Revelation chapter 5. So starting in verse 1, John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John is writing this and he was transported to heaven in a vision. And he got to watch this scene unfolding in front of him from the very throne room of heaven. And we don't know exactly how the timing of the scene corresponds with the events on earth. It might have already happened, or it might still be to come, and it doesn't really matter. John saw God himself seated on a magnificent throne and surrounded by angels and elders and living creatures. And God held in his right hand a scroll. And it was a scroll that no one could open. And the sight of it made John weep. And I want to try to understand a little bit about these tears that John was shedding. Um, because this wasn't a quiet, dignified kind of weeping. Um, it wasn't a British-style, trembly upper lip. <laughs> it wasn't a few dainty American-style tears into a tissue. Uh, no, this was full-on ugly crying. John said that he began to weep loudly. So this was full-volume Hebrew wailing. <laughs> right in front of God and the angels and everybody. And I just find that enormously embarrassing. <laughs> so I need to understand why did John weep? And the reason is that the scroll in God's hand is the only way that the world can ever be put right. John recognized what that scroll was. He saw that it was a legal document and he recognized that it was God's will. So we know from archeology span that it was common in the first century for all kinds of legal documents to be written on scrolls that were then sealed by six or more seals. And they were sealed by the witnesses so that the legal document couldn't be tampered with in any way before it was opened. And John knew that this scroll in God's hand was his legal document. It was God's will, his complete blueprint for justice on the earth. So it was God's perfect plan to make everything right, to undo all the works of evil, and to make everything sad come untrue. And that's why this scroll has so many words on it. There's so much evil. Uh, it was unusual for legal scrolls to have writing on the outside, because he didn't want anyone to read it until it was opened. But John saw that this scroll was full of writing on the inside and on the back. There's so much to say. There's so much in the world that needs to be fixed. But God has a plan. He knows what to do. He has a complete plan for dealing with all of it. But then in this scene, there's an immediate problem because who is going to execute it? The mighty angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll? So they're looking for a suitable executor, someone to put God's will into effect. And they look everywhere. They look up in heaven where the mighty angels live. 
Angels like Gabriel and Michael who did battle with Satan. But these are not worthy. They don't understand the full mind of God and they can't pay the price for the sins of men. And the same goes for all the great heroes of the Bible. Abraham, Moses, Ruth, David and the others. They're all up in heaven too. But none of them are worthy. So they look on the earth at the living. But it's the same story. And they even look under the earth. I don't know who they thought they might find there. (laughs) But they looked and they had no luck. So everyone is considered. Everyone who's ever lived, everyone who's ever died, and everyone falls short. No one can be found anywhere to serve as the executor of God's will to open it and put it into practice. And that's why John is ugly crying in front of the throne of God in heaven. Because without that scroll, without the final verdict, there's no salvation and everyone is lost. Evil's going to keep on winning. But then in verse 5, one of the elders tells John to dry his eyes because the executor has been found. The elder says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus appears in this heavenly heavenly scene in the midst of great need of longing. There's a huge void in heaven. There's a role that desperately needs to be filled. There's a terrible vacancy. And there's only one candidate in all of heaven and earth who's worthy to take the scroll. They looked everywhere and they considered all the others and they're sure there's only one. And Jesus can do it because he conquered. His credentials are his cross and his resurrection. He conquered death and he has the power to destroy death and that gives him the authority to serve as the Father's executor and put his final judgment into practice. So from heaven's perspective, the mission of the cross and resurrection matters first because it's the only way that the world could ever be put right and second because it's the only way that we can be put right. So John dries his eyes and looks up to find this promised Lion of Judah But instead of a lion, he sees a lamb. So verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So John is seeing all this action take place in symbols, That's the nature of visionary writing. And it has a certain dreamlike quality, doesn't it? All of a sudden, Jesus just appears. And he doesn't look like the normal guy that John knew. He looks like a lamb covered with horns and eyes. Um, And all the horns and eyes in verse 6 might sound freaky, but they're just symbols of perfect knowledge and perfect power. And the most striking symbol of all is that when Jesus, this worthy one, appears in the scene, he looks to John like a lamb, a lamb, and a slain lamb at that, so maybe he was bleeding or wounded or limping or something, but he didn't look well, and that's such a strange symbol for a conquering hero, it's not very striking, a lion would have been much better, or an eagle, or a bull, why does Jesus appear in this scene as a lamb, 
And this question unlocks the central mystery of the whole scene, why he and only he is worthy. And it's really the central mystery of the whole Bible, the question of how can we be forgiven and saved? Because the role of lambs in the Bible is to take away sin. John the Baptist introduced Jesus for the first time by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he had in mind the sacrificial lamb from the law of Moses, the one that carried away sin on the day of atonement, as, as we find in Leviticus chapter 16. I'm sure you all have that chapter memorized. <laughs> Maybe not, but uh, it is one of the central chapters of the Old Testament, talking about the day of atonement. Because you see, long before Jesus came, uh, God set up a way for his people to be forgiven. They had to bring a perfect lamb and make a sacrifice. There had to be blood, and God would do a miracle. It was a process where they took their hands, it was very physical, and they put their hands on the head of the lamb, and they confessed their sin. And how did it happen? I don't know, but God allowed it to happen. He took the sin off his people, and he put it on the animal. It's the miracle of transfer. It's a transaction out of the people, away from them, and onto that lamb. And God called it justice. Justice, because now that lamb without blemish would be the one to bear the sin. And the lamb was going to die for them, and the price of sin would be paid. And that plan in the Old Testament was miraculous and wonderful, but it raises an obvious problem. Can a lamb, an animal, really pay for me? Is the cost of the lamb equal to the cost of us who are made in the image of God? And the answer to that question has to be no. And that's why in the Old Testament they, they had to go back. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> they had to go back again and again, year after year, offering the blood of bulls and goats and trusting in the promises of God. Even though, as it says in Hebrews 10 verse 4, they knew that with the blood of bulls and goats it is impossible to take away sin. But they did as God told them and they were forgiven through their obedience. And the Lord speaks in the Old Testament through pictures and through copies and through shadows so that we might know the reality of what's coming. So then, if a lamb isn't enough, what about a human? Can we rescue ourselves? Can we ransom ourselves? Maybe with money or with prayers or with good works? Or can one man stand in the place of another man? But the Old Testament says, no, still no. It's still impossible. We're much too valuable for that. We can't afford it. So Psalm 49 says it in this way. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So we come back to the question that Sarah asked the children earlier. What are we worth? What are our souls worth if the lives of any number of animals cannot pay for them? And if no amount of money can afford them? The richest man in the world is Jeff Bezos. He has $150 billion. But Psalm 49 says that he could give every penny to God and still not pay the price of his own soul. Amen. A man cannot do it. Not even a good man. Only God 
is big enough to pay. But sin isn't God's debt. It's man's debt. And man should pay it. And so here is the mystery of forgiveness. Here is God's answer that God himself became man. God who could afford the debt and man who owed it. And the God-man took on the role of the sacrificial lamb and spilled his own blood, blood that was precious enough to pay for all the souls who were ever born. And so justice was satisfied and forgiveness was accomplished. And as Sarah said, the resurrection was the sign that God had accepted Jesus' offering, that the transaction was complete and that his mission had succeeded. So friends, what are we worth to be bought at such a price? And what are we worth to him that he should come and pay it on our behalf? And what is he worth that his blood could redeem the whole world? We can see now why Jesus would appear in this triumphant heavenly scene in Revelation 5, standing as a lamb, looking as if he had been slain. It's not a symbol of weakness or defeat. It's a symbol of infinite value, of infinite worth. And the highest angels and saints in heaven fall on their faces and worship and sing in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And that mighty chorus is then picked up by a wider circle. By hundreds of thousands of angels who sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then that same theme is picked up again by a still wider circle, by every creature that moves on the earth, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And heaven and earth agree and the chorus is deafening. So I think it's good for us to remember today that heaven is already singing this song and it's singing it loudly. <laughs> um, because as we gather here today, it might uh, feel to you like our own worship is somewhat inadequate. Uh, that Jesus deserves so much more than we can bring him. And yes, that's right, he does. But he is pleased with the heartfelt offering that we bring, small as it is even though we ourselves might not be satisfied with it. We need to remember that we're part of something so much bigger, and we're not in the stadium yet. So if you see a Seminoles fan uh, going, oh, uh, all by himself, it doesn't sound very loud and impressive, does it? Uh, it might seem like pretty small enthusiasm. Uh, but then, when you get those fans together in the stadium, the noise is really something. It becomes a mighty tidal wave of sound. And when we gather here in church today to worship, it's better than being alone, but it's still not the stadium. We're still a lot more like one fan going, oh, all by ourselves, compared to what we will be part of when we get among those hundreds of thousands of angels. So John today brings us a vision from the stadium. And everything there is a loud song of praise to the Father and the Spirit and the Son. And the Son is fully honored there for completing his mission. 
for dying on the cross to forgive our sin and put us right, and for rising to new life to claim the scroll from the Father's hand and put the whole world right. His is the name that's praised above every name. So while our songs might sound small and alien in this foreign land, they're going to be right at home in heaven. And their power today comes from the way they echo that much greater sound. So I want to keep John's heavenly vision in mind as we worship today and as we go on to baptize Ruth right now. Uh, She's just one person, a six-year-old girl, but she's so valuable that none of our lives could have saved hers. And so precious to Jesus that he went to the cross to rescue her. She's going to be one of thousands of people baptized today around the world. You can't get um, statistics on it, but just to give you one example of one church in one country, the Catholic Church in France expects to baptize one of 4,000 people this weekend. So multiply that by all the different churches in all the countries of the world and think what a great crowd Ruthie is joining today. A crowd from every tribe and language and people and nation. And yet, in the eyes of God, she doesn't get lost in that crowd. She's known and loved personally by our Creator, by our great Savior. And we know that the angels in heaven will sing a special song just for Ruthie today, and that their joy and celebration will outdo any of ours here because of what she's worth, and because of what she's worth to God. So Revelation chapter 5 gives us heaven's interpretation of why the mission of Good Friday and Easter Sunday matters. It matters because it's the only way the world can ever be put right, and it's the only way that we can ever be put right. So Jesus is worthy. Let's hold nothing back as we worship him today. Amen. Amen.